So some of you are too young to remember this, but one of the glories of the VCR era was the fast forward button. Now, a lot of you, I said, are too young to remember this. I need to catch you up a little bit. There used to be this mythological device called a VCR. And what you had to do was you had to go to the video store and you had to sort through this entire library that a magical place like Blockbuster Video would have or your local movie store might have. And you'd sift through all of them, you and your four friends. And then finally, you'd find a movie that the five of you wanted to watch and you'd pull it off the shelf. But alas, the video cassette would not be there because somebody else had checked it out or rented it. So you had to put it back on the shelf. And then you go find another one and all five of you want to watch this movie. And lo and behold, it is there, the cassette set is there. And so you take it, you take it up to the front, you rent it, you bring it back home. And the enchanting thing, this doesn't really amaze us anymore. I don't know why, but it was just incredible that you could look at this black colored video cassette and there was a movie on there. It was just amazing. So the limitation though, was that because it was tape on reels and very mechanical, the movie was where it was in the movie. Like if you were 10 minutes into the movie, you were 10 minutes into the movie and you could not just skip to the end with the skip button a few times. You couldn't push the button and scrub on ahead to where you wanted to go. You had to hit fast forward or hit rewind and then just wait until the cassette got there, right? So there was though an advantage to this and that was that after you had seen the movie, you could rewind a little bit and you could watch it on fast forward. And when you're eight years old, that is a blast. Like all the characters are just going super fast and it would make this noise the whole time through. And me and my friends would just sit there enchanted by this whole thing. So much fun to watch a movie on fast forward like that. And we lose little things like that as technology gets better and better. Well, the reason I'm telling you that is that we are getting to the end of Jacob's story in the book of Genesis. Uh, It's wrapping up now. His life won't end in this story. He will bury his father, but he won't die himself. Uh, But the story will shift away from him and over to Joseph. And so at that natural break in the story, after this sermon, we're going to take a break from Genesis, hope to come back to it in a few months and finish it up with the story of Joseph. Until then, we've got a sermon series on Micah for you and then a couple of one-offs until then. And what this narrator is going to do in this last chapter of Jacob's story is eight things that happened during Abraham's life over the course of his whole story and eight things, the same eight things, that will happen again over many chapters in Joseph's story. They all happen in one chapter here in the same order. So to walk you through it, in Abraham's story, he was called on a divine journey. He obeyed and went on that divine journey. Years later, God's promises were reaffirmed to him. And then years later, he had a son. And then years later, he buried his wife. And then his son got married. And then his descendants were listed. And then uh, he was the father and he was buried as the father. Those same eight things will happen again to Joseph. Someone will be called, or in Joseph's story, and all to him. Someone will be called on a divine journey, this time to Egypt. They will obey and go. God will reaffirm his promises. Someone will have a son. Someone will bury their wife. Someone will get married. Someone's descendants will be listed. And someone will bury their father, all in that order, but slowly. In this one chapter in Jacob's life, 
He gets called on a journey. He obeys. The promises are reaffirmed. He has a son. He buries his wife. His son does a marriage-ish thing. His descendants are listed, and he buries his father, right? It's like watching the whole story in fast forward. You just hear that sound the whole time. All eight things condensed into one chapter. Narrator's doing that for two reasons that I can see at least. The first one, he's saying, hey, those things that happened when Abraham was around, they're happening again, and they will happen yet again, as if to say, Jacob isn't the first person or the last person for these things to happen to. At the same time, the narrator's framing them in such a way as to make pictures of what it is like to follow God through all of these things. So, What we are going to get this morning is a varied picture, all the many pictures that are in the Bible of what it looks like to follow God with your life. Just fast forward through all of them and a reminder that for all of those things, we are not the first people to go through them. And unless the Lord comes back soon, we will not be the last people to go through them either. So let's look together at Genesis 35 and see if you can just notice how quickly this story goes through these many stories happen. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and all the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the name of the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak before Bethel. And he called its name Alon Bekuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying... She called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. 
And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the river of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The words of the Lord. In that collection of stories, our Lord is equipping us to live the Christian life by painting for us a well-rounded picture of it and reminding us that others have gone through it before us. Now, the short version of that story is that Jacob goes through a lot of stuff, right? It all happens, and it feels like watching a movie on Fast Forward. If I had to roll all of that together in one point, which I think the narrator is trying to do, I would say that there is a lot to following Jesus, and you're not the first person to go through any of it. Jacob goes through a lot. He's not the first person to go through any of it. He won't be the last person to go through any of it. If you are a son or daughter of Jacob, if you are a Christian, you are going through a lot. But the good news is, you're not the first person to go through any of it, and you won't be the last person to go through any of it. So we're going to walk through this morning several pictures of the Christian life, several images that God gives to us that show us what it's like to follow Jesus. And along the way with each one, we're going to remember that we aren't the first people to live like this, and we won't be the last people to live like this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that equips you to live for him. And if you're not a believer, if you're considering following Jesus, I pray what he will do through this is show you many pictures of what it would be like to follow him, what he is calling you to two, and maybe that would be a part in God's plan of you coming to faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a follower of him yourselves. Let's start off with verses one through seven. In the first seven verses, God calls Jacob to journey to Bethel, and then along the way, he protects him. We saw in verse one, the Lord called him to take that trip to Bethel. That is a particularly scary trip to make for him. If you were here last week, you saw how the last story ended. His sons and his family being much smaller than the cities around him, his two sons went through a city and killed all the men in the city and then kidnapped all the wives and all of the children in the city and took them with him. This would earn the scorn and the enmity of every city around. Everyone would want to kill them now for doing this. So when you've got this small family of yours and there are these big, scary cities that you've gone ahead and made enemies with, the very last thing you want to do is get everybody up, get all of the children up, get all of the livestock up, pack away all of the weapons and take a vulnerable journey through all of those cities. You're just asking to be attacked. But the Lord calls him to rise and make the journey anyhow. 
Decades ago, Jacob had promised he would go to Bethel. He would offer an offering there. He had not kept that promise. The Lord said, I am holding you to it. So what happens? Well, in verse 5, we see that he goes, he makes the journey. And instead of all of those cities attacking him, the Lord put a spirit of terror upon the city so that none of them would leave their city gate and attack him. So he is on a dangerous journey and the Lord is protecting him as he goes on this dangerous journey he's called upon. There's our first picture of what the Christian life is like. In many ways, following Jesus is like walking on a dangerous journey with the protection of the Lord, a journey through a dangerous place with God's protection. He's not the first one to do this. His father, his grandfather, Abraham, had been called on a very similar journey, going to a place that was not his, that was full of inhabitants that may conquer him. Many times he went to places that were dangerous, and the Lord protected him there every time. And he would not be the last person whose journey was described in these very terms. You may be familiar with Psalm 23. This is the picture of Psalm 23, isn't it? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they protect me. It's a picture of walking on a dangerous journey, getting somewhere, but it's a tough journey to get there, and the Lord is protecting you. When sheep would come home on that autumn journey, after the end of a grazing season, they would be up on the peaks of the mountain where the grass was the best in the late summer, but then they would have to come home. And to do this, they'd have to walk through the valley to come home for the winter. That autumn sun would be low in the sky, so it would never get up that mountain ridge, and so you'd be in the shadow for the whole journey home. And as the plants began to die because there wasn't much sunlight there in the autumn with the low sun, and then the small animals would begin to die because the plants had died, then suddenly the large predators would get very hungry. So the bears, they want to hibernate and they want one good last meal. And the mountain lions want one good last meal. And here come all these little helpless sheep through the valley. What is that to a lion? That is a feast to a lion. So here these sheep are walking through that valley of the shadow of death. But they aren't scared because they have a strong shepherd with a mighty staff to strike down any predator that may come. This is the same picture that we're getting of Jacob here. He's walking through this scary place, but the Lord is protecting him. And if you're a Christian, that is a picture of your life as well. Walking through a frightening place that is not your home because you're on your way to your home. The Christian life is not ultimately about this life, is it, about, it is about where you are headed. If you want a really good picture of this outside of the Bible, there's an old book I'd recommend to you called Pilgrim's Progress, second best-selling book of all time after the Bible itself, written by John Bunyan several hundred years ago. And it's literally just this picture, one pilgrim on a dangerous journey, and everything that happens to him is a little metaphor for the Christian life. If you want to understand your life better, Pilgrim's Progress is a great way to look at it. We have many pictures of it in the Bible too, including several of the ones we went through there. But if it was true of Abraham true of Jacob, true of David as he wrote the 23rd Psalm, then we can be confident ourselves that we are not the first followers of God to walk through a dangerous place under the protection of our Lord. Whether you are working in a school system that you feel is 
getting more and more hostile toward your faith and wondering if the day is going to come when you'll get fired for what you believe and if you'll lose your retirement and pension and everything that goes through that, if that's the dangerous place that you are in, or if you are the only weirdo in the office who doesn't want to jam out to the new Beyonce album because it's got too much immorality for you, right? So many dangerous places we can be called to walk through, but the Lord is there and he is protecting us through every one of them. Perhaps it's the political climate that looks dangerous to you, and perhaps it is. Maybe you look around and you sense that tide rising, and you're wondering, is the anger against Christianity ever going to burst in our country into outright persecution? Some of you are afraid of that, I know, and you can see this world as a dangerous place we are walking through, but with the protection of our Lord. As you do that, you're doing that with the pictures of those who have gone before you to help you. Jacob has been through it. David has been through it. Abraham had been through it. And if you're walking through something scary, you know that as well. You're going through it as well. That means then two things for us, two quick applications. One would be, don't get too comfortable, right? This world is not our home. We can't get too comfortable here. And the other would be to look to God for safety, If you can look at your life and say, yeah, I am walking through some scary stuff, and it's the Lord that's calling me through it. It's because of my faith that I'm walking through scary stuff. Who can you look to for protection? The same God that called you on that frightening journey. And then at the same time, we have to remember not to get too comfortable here either. I think Greenwood is a fantastic place to live. The world is a scary place. Greenwood is a less scary place, isn't it? Less crime, There's a Target. We have three Chick-fil-A's. I mean, come on. Does it get better than that? It doesn't seem that scary when you get to pick which Chick-fil-A you want to go to. But it's easy to get comfortable in a nice place like Greenwood. It's easy when you can pay 10 bucks a month and have access to all the world's music on your phone. It's easy to get comfortable like that. And the truth is 21st century music is great, but it's full of immorality. And so we can't get too comfy here. Netflix is awesome. Office reruns are hilarious, but it's full of immorality. And if we get too comfy with it, we'll start to think that this world is our home and the next world is not our home. But Jacob's story here calls us to remember this is a walk through a scary place and our God is with us. There's the first picture of the Christian life we get from Jacob's story here. Nestled into those verses are three things that Jacob's family does before they take the journey. And from each of those three things, we get another picture of the Christian life. You can see in verses two through four, Jacob calls his family to three different actions. First, throw away all of your idols. Second, purify yourselves. And third, change your clothes. Right? It's three things they're called to do. Each of those are a picture of what we're called to do in our lives. The first one, the Christian life is largely throwing away idols to worship the Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you are not the first person called to cast your idols away and turn to the Lord himself. What's an idol you might ask. We don't, we don't have many statues of Buddha left around, really, do we, right? Well, what is an idol these days? Well, our hearts were made to worship in gladness and joy the Lord of hosts, right? To see him in his glory, to just burst with awe and worship, to let out worship with our mouths, to look to him for all of our needs, 
to look for him for a sense of meaning, to look to him for protection. All these things are what it means to come under him as he is our Lord and we as his people. We look up to him and worship that way. That's the only place where we can really be happy is in worship of him. And one of the hard truths to swallow in the Bible is that deep down, our hearts reject and hate this God. We're made to worship him. But there is just an impulse in us that says, no, I will worship anything else. This is why we do the things that we do. We want to dethrone him. We want to get him off that throne. We want to worship anything but him. And the trouble with that is that we are wired to worship something. And so we're not going to walk around with an empty throne in our hearts. We're going to find something else to put there in God's place. And so these days, you know, one person might work really hard to get a good job and then finally get that good job and really enjoy it and rejoice and say, this job is so amazing. You just pour out their heart and praise of this job and say, I'm going to look to this job for all that I need and I'm going to look to this job for my safety and my sense of meaning and my sense of identity and I will do anything that it needs of me. And the next thing you know, it's worship of that job. We made that job into an idol. The culture around us is training us to make our sexual identity an idol, right? This is what I want in my heart, and so it's who I am. It's how I will identify. I will do anything I need to get this one thing that is on my heart. It's everything about me. And if I could just find that one person and join with them in that special way, I'll be complete as a human. To look at sex that way is to make it an idol. You can do this with anything, your kids, money, some device that you have, that invisible crowd on social media that might like your photos or might not like your photos. We can turn just about any good gift into an idol. And what the Lord calls us to do is he calls us to him. He says, come follow me. And part of this is throw off those idols, kick those idols off and come solely to Jesus Christ. Now, we look to him for meaning. Now we worship him alone. Now we look to him for protection and for provision. Now we find our happiness and our hearts burst in awe before him because he is the good one. This is something of what it means to follow Jesus, cast those idols away and come to him. In a little detail, we find a little bit more meaning. You might notice in those verses, they take even their gold earrings off and they throw them away too. You might wonder, what would they do that for? Well, in other stories in the Bible, people melted down their gold earrings and their jewelry to make idols out of. So God gave them a gift, they turned it into an idol. So these people are saying, you know what? We're going to get rid of the gold too, just to make sure we don't make any idols out of this other stuff. The meaning we might pull from that is sometimes the Lord just calls you to stop worshiping your idol. Sometimes the Lord even calls you to give up the good gift that you have been turning into an idol. It takes wisdom to know which one he is calling to you. Some of us are worshiping that crowd on social media that either likes or doesn't like our posts. Now, is the right response to that to just stop worshiping it? Or is it to delete your account altogether, right? Is it to just throw the idol off or throw the earrings off as well? Well, you got to decide that in wisdom. For this story here, they threw off the earrings as well. So there's just one more picture there, throwing away our idols. You are not the first Christian to be called to throw away your idols. 
Second thing he calls them to do is to be purified, all right? Purify yourselves. This was an ancient ritual that had some cleansing to it. We might suppose it was something like bathing yourself or something like that. And the idea was it had moral symbolism. The idea was, I have been cleansed from my sins. I used to be dirty because of what I have done, but now I've been cleaned. And this is one more picture of what it means to follow Jesus. If you follow him, you are not the first Christian to be cleansed of your sins. You're not the first Christian who can look back and say, that used to be me, and I used to be defiled because of what I did, but not anymore, right? I've been cleansed from it. How are we cleansed? Well, the Bible teaches that there was a day where Jesus rose up a glass of wine, and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins, talking about what he would do just a day later. He would shed his own blood and he would die. And the Bible teaches that blood is powerful enough to cleanse us of our sins. To to come to him, to trust him, to look to him in faith means to be cleansed of all that sin. It means to stand before God with confidence, not with arrogance because you still worship him, but confidence because he has cleansed you of your sins. Some of us, We look back on what we've done, and it just feels like a half inch deep into your skin, you're just still dirty from all the things we did. And what the scripture teaches is that the blood of Christ is enough to cleanse us through and through for our sins. For many of us, we can look at that and we can say, okay, that's true, but it sure doesn't feel that way. I still feel dirty because of my sins. And the faith that the scriptures call us to are not just to embrace the truth intellectually and say, well, I know this is true, but it doesn't feel that way, and so I'm going to kind of hover in between believing it and not believing it because it says it, but I don't feel it. No, the, the call of the scriptures is to unite our whole heart to fear his name, to say, you know what? I will put my feelings under the word of God. I will put my desires under the word of God, and if he says I'm clean, I'm clean. That's how I'm going to start looking at myself through and through. So there's there's your third picture of what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus, to be cleansed of your sins. The fourth comes from the next thing that Jacob calls them to do, uh, to change their clothes. After they're cleansed, they change their clothes. Now you can probably relate to this. If you take a big long shower and then you put on a brand new suit or a brand new fancy dress, and everybody sees you wearing that, they know, okay, that person does not plan to get dirty today, right? That person's not going to go jump in a mud puddle, right? They're wearing nice, new, clean clothes. If the guy who owns the auto shop walks into his car shop in a suit and tie, everybody knows, okay, he's not planning on working on any cars today, right? He would have worn clothes he can get dirty in. To change into new clothes after you've cleaned yourself is to say, I don't plan to get dirty for a while. I plan to stay clean like this. They're doing this as a moral symbol, right? They have been cleansed from their sins and they're going to put on fresh, clean clothes as a way of saying, I don't intend to get morally dirty again. In other words, those sins that I've been cleansed from, I don't plan on doing those anymore. I've been called 
away from them. This is a sign of saying, I intend to live a morally pure life now. And if you follow Jesus Christ, you are not the first person to be called, now that you're cleansed of your sins, to live a morally pure life. He says, be holy for I am holy. He calls us a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Those were the holy people in Israel, a people set apart for God's own choosing. And so therefore he says, put off your former way of life. Put off the deeds of the flesh and all the things that we used to walk in. Why? Well, because now I'm clean and I'm wearing nice clothes, so to speak. I don't intend to go and get dirty again. I intend to walk in cleanliness. Now, that's moral cleanliness. I intend to walk in the Lord's ways. There's our third picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You see what I mean by this thing being on fast forward? We're just zooming through all of them, right? And that's the point of this one. Lord, Lord put all those together like that so we would see them all in one picture. Things have been really high and lofty for these first seven verses, right? All these great pictures of following God and all these spiritual realities about being cleansed from sin. And then we come crashing back down to earth in verse 8. In verse 8, Rebecca's nurse Deborah dies and they bury her and they mourn for her. How's that for a crash back down to real life? It brings a lot of questions up. How did, how did Rebecca's nurse get with, did she go with Jacob the whole time and not stay with Rebecca? Or did they meet up on the way back? Or we don't know how she got there, but somehow she's there. She died. They buried her right there. Rebecca has probably been dead for a decade or so by now. So it makes sense that she would be there. All kinds of questions. But what it does in the story is it just kind of brings us back to earth. We did all that lofty stuff and now we're like, oh, we're still here on this world where people die and where we still grieve for each other. Hang on to that tension. It will come back later. Now something great and lofty happens in verses 9 to 12. The Lord appears to Jacob, repeats the name change he had already given him. He already changed his name to Israel, but he repeats it again. And then he repeats several of the promises that he has made to Jacob. So essentially, he appears and he says a whole bunch of stuff that he's already said. You're like, well, what do I gain from that? He's already said all of that. Well, he did the same thing for Abraham, right? He reappeared and made the promises more and more and even expanded on them sometimes. He repeated the promise again to Isaac. Now the second time he's changing Jacob's name and the third time he's talking about the promises with Jacob And come to think of it, that pattern will continue. Israel will be called out into the desert from Egypt, and the Lord will give them the law. And then they will go to the edge of the promised land. They will fail, and so they will circle the desert for 40 years. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means a second telling, the Lord gives them the law again and makes the promises again to them. And then throughout the Psalms, we hear the same things repeated over and over again. And then the prophets will rise up and they will cycle through the same sermon multiple times. One of the challenges I'm dealing with studying Micah for an upcoming sermon series now is he basically preaches the same sermon three times with just different illustrations. And so it's like, how do you preach that? It's the same message over and over again. The Lord keeps repeating himself like this. Then Jesus comes and he gave us four gospels. What does it say about us that we need that story told four times, right? 
He just keeps repeating different angles, different things, but the same thing over and over again. And it closes out in Revelation where we cycle through the same story over and over again. Some of you study in Revelation and seeing that right now. So, so what are we learning here? The Lord repeats those promises over and over and over again. Why does he do that? Because we need him to. Right? If, he, if he doesn't tell us over and over again of his lavish love for us, and his lofty and great promises for us, we'll lose heart and we'll stop believing in them. This is a little bit like a marriage. If you can imagine a husband and wife, a bride and groom at the altar of marriage, and they're getting, getting married, and right after the vows, he looks in her eyes and he says, I love you. And she knows that he means it. And then for 20 years, He never says it again. What's going to happen? Her heart's going to start to wonder, does he really care about me? Did he really mean it when he said that back then? To to keep that love alive, you have to keep repeating it to each other. You have to keep doing gestures that say, I love you and I care for you and I keep my promises to you. You can't just say it once and expect the person to believe you forever. That's not because she's especially insecure. That's because that's how the human heart works. When promises are made like that, we've got to be reminded over and over again, yes, this person really does love me. Yes, this person really does care for me. And the Lord looks down to his bride and over and over again, he says, here's the same promise again. Here's the same thing I promised you last week and I'll promise it again this week. Here's the same thing you read in my word yesterday and I'll repeat it again today because he knows we need to hear it over and over again. This is why it's so important, after you've read the whole Bible, to keep reading it every day. A few years ago, I asked, and and some of you in this room have read the Bible 20 times, and that was two years ago, and I bet those of you that had done it 20 times, done it 22 times now. Why is that? Because you know there never gets to be a point where you don't need to keep hearing the promises over and over again. That's why we keep coming back to church every Sunday because we need to hear the promises of God lavished over us again and again or our hearts will begin to wonder and we'll start to think, does he really care about me? Does he really love me? Does he really mean all of those things that he said to me? Now we've got to hear the voice of our Lord say, here it is again, just like he did to Jacob. I've already changed your name to Israel. I'll do it again. I've already promised you all these things. I'll do it again. So you are not then the first Christian who needs to hear God make his promises over and over. That's something what it means to follow him, to hear it over and over, that he loves you and he makes good promises to you. Verses 13 to 15, we get yet another picture. We get many angles here. Jacob responds by building a pillar of worship and worshiping him. So God makes the great promises Jacob responds in worship. And this is yet another way the Christian life is summarized so many times in the scriptures, right? Uh, The book of Romans goes through God's wonderful promises for 11 chapters. And then in the first verse of chapter 12 says, Therefore, in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your act of worship. He makes great promises. He says incredible things that are incredibly true. We respond in worship to him. That's part of why some of the things I said earlier are true. That's part of why we've got to cast our idols off because we worship 
him now, right? We're seeing this from different angles. It's part of why we need to live in purity now because we live for him now. We walk in his ways. We offer ourselves in worship to him. So you are not then the first Christian called to respond to God's promise in worship. Many have done this before you. The Lord speaks down to you as his word is read or as you read it yourself. He speaks down. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I've spilled my blood to offer forgiveness for your sins. I have risen from the dead to offer you eternal life. I have given to you my spirit to dwell within you, and I will come back, and we will be together forever. He says these things, and we look up to him and say, all right, I can find myself in church every Sunday worshiping this God. This God's good. Right. I can find myself reading his word every day. I can find myself living under his ways because this God is worthy of it. We respond to him in worship. And that's one more picture of the Christian life. Let's look at one last picture. Several things happen that give us one last picture. In verses 16 to 20, a, a terrible tragedy happens. It was much more common then. Thank God it's rarer now, but it still happens Uh, Rachel gives birth to her second son, and and she dies in childbirth. Now, that's bitter enough, but it's especially bitter when you look back at the rest of the story. Rachel had for many years been barren, and at one moment she shouted at her husband, Give me children or I shall die. And then the Lord gave her one child, And as soon as the child was born, the first thing she said, even the way she named the child, was, may the Lord give me another one, right? How's that for a naming ceremony? I'm not happy with you. I want another one, right? So she said, give me children or I shall die. She said, one child said, it's not enough. May the Lord add to me another. Now, the Lord adds to her another, and she dies. Her own words have come true over her. That is especially bitter. And very much so for Jacob, who loved Rachel, who sought after her, who worked 14 years to win her love and her affection and her hand in marriage and has found so much delight in her and now has to part ways and bury her and mourn for her. So all this great lofty stuff, and yet Jacob is going through some hard stuff. Things will take even a twisted turn after that. With Rachel gone now, the coveted status of favorite wife. Now, Jacob was a a polygamist. He had sinned against God by taking multiple wives. And in that world, when you had multiple wives, one of them was the favorite wife. And that one basically got to be queen in the house, kind of lord it over everybody else. Well, Rachel's gone now. So which of the three remaining wives gets to be on top now? That's the question. So Reuben, whose mother is Leah, knows that the next in line to be favored wife is probably Rachel's former servant, Bilhah. And he also knows that if he begins to take the things that are his dad, he becomes king of the house prematurely. And so he goes in with his father's wife, Bilhah, and either seduces or or rapes her, one or the other. We don't get to know which one. As a way of saying, Dad, I'm in charge now. What used to be yours is mine. And by the way, 
this wife that I've spoiled for you can't be your favorite anymore. So now my mom has to be your favorite. This is, this is vying for family power that they are doing here with this despicable and twisted act that Reuben does here. We learn that Jacob hears about it, and that's all we learn. Is he going to do anything about it? Is this ever going to come back to haunt Reuben? Is he ever going to pay for it? We're going to have to wait several chapters to find the answer to that. But this is sort of like when you watch the season finale of a show and they wrap up a lot of things, but they put a little bit of tension in there, so you've got to stick around. That's going to be answered in the next season, and those questions are going to hang over the whole story of Joseph. Is Reuben ever going to get what's coming to him? But some of the effects begin to show right then. After this, Jacob's sons are listed in verses 23 to 25. And there's something really important here. They're not listed in order of birth. They're listed by who their mom is, which is an indicator, a bit of a foreshadow of what's going to happen. This family is going to start dividing based on those four moms. His sons are going to start feuding and fighting with each other. My mom's better than your mom and kind of developing into clans like this. So that's going to play out over the next, you could say, season as well. And then finally in verses 27 to 29, uh, his father dies and he buries him. So Jacob is enduring while all that wonderful lofty stuff is happening. Uh, His beloved wife dies. His son does something unthinkable to him. His family begins to feud, divide, and fight And then he buries his father. And so in the midst of all that great lofty stuff, we get our last picture of the Christian life. It is often a life of disappointing and bitter hardships. Receiving the promises of God does not make you immune to all that awful stuff that happens to people. In fact, your story may land and shape up in a way that's disappointing. That's the end of Jacob's story. He lives on, but that's how his story ends. Sad and disappointing. Closer to the end of his life, he will look back and he will say, few and evil have been the days of my life. This is a man who has seen God's face and heard God's voice and been given so much the father of the nation of Israel. And yet, if I had the opportunity to go back in time and live his life, I don't think that I would want to do it. It's a hard and disappointing life. That's often what it's like to be a Christian, isn't it? To to receive incredible promises. To know that heaven is stored up for you. And yet, to have details or even big things in your life that you look at and you say, why did that go like that? Right? Why did he have to die so young? Why did my son have to do that to me? Why did I lose that job that I loved, that I was such a good fit for? Will I ever find a spouse? Why haven't the details of my life worked out the way that they're supposed to? To live in that tension And even to be disappointed with the way things have landed here on earth. It's actually part of what it means to be human. None of us get that perfect life. 
So the myth that Christianity leads to a perfect life, we just see busted here in Jacob's troubles, don't we? So why could Jacob still die a man in faith and a man who was happy? There's an answer for us in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. We're going to look at verse 39 to 40. This is why it worked out that way for Jacob and why he could still die in faith. And it may even explain why it's worked out that way for you and why you can still die in faith. Oh, you know what? I said 12, but it's 11. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. So in this 11th chapter of Hebrews, the author has gone through all of our Old Testament heroes and how wonderful and lofty their faith was. And then he says this incredible thing at the end. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So so they died without receiving all of those promises God has made. They died disappointed, saying, I know kings are going to come from me, but I don't see any kings. I know the Lord has blessed me and made me great, but few and evil have been the days of my life. They died disappointed, not having received the promise. And the reason is in verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And that may be tough to follow, but essentially what he means is God's promises are going to come true for us on the same day that they come true for them. On the day that God's promise is fulfilled and we are made kings and queens in his new kingdom, that's the day when Jacob can look and say, oh, kings and queens have come from me. On the day when we dwell in the promised land of a new heavens and new earth, That's the day Jacob can finally breathe a sigh of relief and say, ah, my descendants have inherited that great land and become a mighty nation. In other words, the promises don't come true fully for them until they come true for us. And that is why it is possible to live a whole life and even die in this life disappointed and feeling like you didn't get the best of life because you haven't yet. The best stuff comes down the road. The best stuff comes when our Lord comes back, we see his face, we rule and reign in him with a new kingdom, and then we look back and we say, you know what? I don't miss a thing. You know what? I could live my whole life without ever having gotten married like I wanted to. I could live my whole life without ever getting that promotion that I have wanted, without ever having the approval of that mob on social media that I wanted. Why can we live without those things? Because we have got a better thing coming. We can die without even having received everything because what's coming to us is better. Living in hope of the future. That's much of what it means to follow Jesus. And Christian, you're not the first person to be disappointed with the way things have gone in your life and to look forward to a better kingdom that is coming. So there we have seven pictures then of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You're not the first Christian to walk through a dangerous land with God's protection. You're not the first Christian to be called to throw away your idols. Not the first one to be purified from your sins. Not the first one to be called to live a pure life now. You're not the first Christian that needs to hear God's promises repeated over and over, Sunday after Sunday, day after day. You're not the first Christian to live in worship that responds to God's promises And you're not the first Christian to look around at the details of your life and saying, you know, this isn't everything it's cracked up to be. There must be 
something better. I just want to close by speaking to any of you who are considering following Jesus. We've gotten here this morning in one way, a fast-forward picture, but in another sense, perhaps the most complete picture of following Jesus that you're ever going to get. We saw it from seven different angles this morning. And so this may be the very day where the Lord says, here is the fullest picture I'm going to give you in one moment of what it looks like to come and to follow me. And he holds out his hand to you now. And he says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, come and follow me. And I pray that you will take his hand and follow him for all of your days. Let's pray together.